Hi, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of the Unity Group in Kansas City. It meets uh, every day at noon and 6 o'clock. It's on 47th Street in the plaza. Uh, sobriety date is March 6, 1978. And uh, I have uh, uh, managed to stay sober today, which is uh, a miracle when I think about it. Uh, it's been a great day. Uh, and uh, it's just a privilege to be in Hannibal uh, at your fourth meeting of the Mississippi Valley Regional Conference, and I uh, appreciate Steve sending me a nice letter asking me to come out here a little while. He wrote it out in his own handwriting, and I checked the spelling. It was all right, and uh, but it was very nice of you to ask me to come here, and it's a privilege, and, and I've seen some faces that I know, and Bullet and Herschel, he's a golfer. That's why I know him, and uh, uh, of course, Dick, he's everywhere, and uh, it's just... Uh, uh, it's nice to be at a meeting. Unfortunately, I'm speaking, uh, but uh, I just feel privileged and honored to be here tonight. Uh, I have a disease. It's the disease of alcoholism. And uh, as my sponsor described to me what this disease encompassed, he tried to explain it very simply, and I'll try to reiterate to you what he told me. He said it's a physical disease. He showed me in the big book where it talks about this physical allergy coupled with a mental obsession. And when I take a drink of alcohol, I have an allergic reaction to it meaning that I can't really tell you when it's going to, you know, basically uh, when I'll be able to stop. I don't know. The last time I took a drink, it took me a year and a half to stop drinking. Uh, it was about uh, after my first AA meeting at 24 years of age. I really felt sorry for those people, uh, but I was convinced that I could control my drinking. As I sat in that parking lot after the meeting, I said, I know I'm going to control my drinking from this day on, and I got drunk on the way home from that, my first AA meeting. I could control it for about three minutes. And so the last time I took a drink and had this allergic reaction, it took me about a year and a half before I got sober. And I don't uh, look down on people that get teary-eyed and sniffled and, and, and they start to sneeze this time of year when the, when the goldenrod comes in. They have, they have an allergic reaction to that sort of thing. And that's basically what happens when I drink alcohol. I cannot control the outcome of it. And, uh, and I accept that today. It's pretty easy for me to accept that. The uh, other thing that he explained to me about the disease of alcoholism, it's a thinking disease. And primarily, my own thinking was very dishonest. It was motivated primarily by self-centered fear and that I would stretch the truth or lie or cheat or delude myself into thinking I could drink normally or I would live in denial about certain things that actually happened and I would just sort of erase them from my memory hoping that that would you know, make them go away. I had a problem thinking, basically. Uh, and uh, if I was left to my own devices, I'd be dishonest because I needed, I needed to get what I thought I wanted in life. Uh, it's an emotional disease. You know, the first time I got drunk at the age of 13, uh, I no longer had to grow up. I mean, I found the very substance that allowed me to live and stop growing up the very first time I got drunk. The pressures that I was starting to feel that, you know, isolated me from my friends and made me feel unique, made me feel different, made me feel as if I didn't fit in. Uh, I no longer had to deal with anger or envy or jealousy or, or resentments. Uh, when any of these kinds of things uh, would crop up in my life, uh, inadequacies, uh, fears, alcohol would make them go away. And there was no need to accept responsibility for my actions because I could always blame you know, everything around me for the problems to justify my drinking. So emotionally, I stopped growing up the day I started drinking, which was 13. And uh, there was no need for it. Alcohol would just sort of make all that go away. And last but not least, uh, but most importantly, it's a spiritual disease. 
in that I really had no room in my life for a power greater than myself. I had no room in my life for God. I had no room in my life for whatever you want to call this power greater than yourself, be it Muhammad or Buddha or Allah or, uh, you know, a new girl or, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I had no room in my life for a, for a, for, for a higher power. And consequently, I thought that I had to run my life on self-will. I thought I had to wrestle life into, in, into what I had thought was a manageable, successful existence. And I failed at that miserably. So that fourfold disease, as it was described to me, he showed me in the 12 and 12 in the big book, where it kind of isolates and pinpoints some of these things. Didn't quite understand that all when I first uh, went through it with him, but he covered those points. Uh, he also made a point to emphasize to me a couple of things about the disease, and, and basically what uh, the disease was, what had to happen in order for me to arrest it, and then the uh, tools to keep me sober, uh, differentiating that from being dry because there's a big difference and he, he pointed this out to me and I experienced it. He had me read page 27 uh, and he wanted me to, sh to, to read a situation where there was a doctor and a chronic alcoholic uh, that were having a, 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 a hard time communicating, so to speak. And this, this, this individual's name was Roland and he was in front of Dr. Jung and telling him that, uh, you know, he was... Uh, a hopeless case and that he was begging this doctor to have some sort of a remedy for him and Dr. Jung was telling him that he didn't really think there was anything he could do to help him the only thing that would help a chronic alcoholic of his case was to have a spiritual experience and uh, uh, he said that's really the only thing we have seen that has had a successful uh, uh, turnabout in chronic alcoholics like yourself and he says and I really don't quite know how to describe it other than it's a uh, the attitudes, ideas, and emotions that are guiding your life right now, you need to just sort of, uh, you know, abandon them all together and get a whole new set of ideas to motivate you and, and, and philosophy to live by. He said, that's what I've been trying to do to you, you know, remorse, breath, or whatever your name was. And uh, he uh, felt as if the gates of hell had come crashing in around him. Here he was in, in the presence of one of the greatest psychoanalysts in the world telling him, sorry, we don't really have any solution for you and uh, other than this spiritual experience. Now, my sponsor wanted me to read this spiritual experience. And there's a little note at the end of that paragraph on page 27 that says, See Spiritual Experience. So my sponsor has me reference to the back. And sure enough, in the back of the big book, there's this thing called Spiritual Experience. It's a couple pages long, and I read it. Didn't understand much of it, but I read it aloud to him. And we came down to this one part on the second page of that that talked about the indispensables to uh, this this you know, having this spiritual experience. And they were honesty, open-mindedness, and the willingness to change, or the willingness to take some action. And uh, I kind of understood what those things meant in theory, but I had yet to implement those in my life. Uh, the idea was here, but actually performing it was another test altogether, and that's the challenge I've had since I've gotten sober. Uh, but there was one part at the very end of that that talked about something that would keep me in everlasting ignorance for the rest of my life, and that was contempt prior to investigation. Yeah, but. That's the only way I can remember what those words really mean. Yeah, but. Because whenever I would say that, which was often when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it meant that my mind was closed. That, yeah, but. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. Yeah, but. I didn't drink like that person. Yeah, but. I'm white. Yeah, but. I have a college education. Yeah, but. I make this much money. Yeah, but. Uh, I think I can control my drink. I was just closing my mind to, to ideas that were different than what I had known. And that is the thing that will keep me in everlasting ignorance. And I didn't understand the power and the magnitude of those two words, yeah, but, uh, because I would just shut myself out from help. 
thinking that I would be able to solve and resolve this disease of alcoholism on my own. Well, it does. I, I can, I'm here to tell you that uh, you know I can stay in everlasting ignorance by using those two words. And uh, uh, it's something that, that I didn't understand again when he pointed it out to me. I read it, but I didn't really understand the consequences of the point he was trying to drive home. Now, there was one last thing he wanted me to read in this nine paragraphs. That was on page 45. And basically in that chapter, it talks about what the lack of power uh, and it, that it is the dilemma with the disease of alcoholism. Now, when I first read that, it was about 20 months in Alcoholics Anonymous, 18, 19 months, somewhere in that area. It was kind of a, you know, a gray period for me. And I didn't quite understand that till I read it at about 20 months. I thought that just not drinking was how you stopped you know, alcoholism. And, and I thought that that's what everything else was supposed to get better. But not drinking is just abstinence from alcohol. It's the lack of power that's the dilemma. And that the reason the book was written was to put me in touch with a power that's greater than myself, and that one has got to be greater than myself. And, 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 and there's one sentence, it's one word, it says, obviously. And it wasn't too obvious to me uh, that that power had to be greater than myself, because I was the power greater than myself, or at least I thought. So there in these nine paragraphs, he gave me basically what the disease was, the tools to arrest it, and what the dilemma is with the, with the disease. And it's basically to have this spiritual experience to bring about sobriety. And uh, this was all nice and neat and clean and orderly, but it's taken a lot of time for me to have an understanding and appreciation of what that means to change my life. And that's the real story. Uh, being an alcoholic, I realize today that it's just something I was born with. You know, I don't care where it came from or where it's headed. All I know is I've accepted the fact that I am an alcoholic. There are certain things that are true to me, and one of them is I am powerless over alcohol. That truth I know is from my own life, the foundation stone which I now stand on. That one thing that I was so ashamed to admit and to recognize is now the foundation through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that's allowed me to be here today to be able to share my experience with you and what, what my life's been in the transformation and where, and where it currently is. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, journey, but it's been difficult and it's been struggled with obstacles and hurdles, uh, but I would much rather have what I have today than what I had when I was drinking. And uh, I hope that point comes across tonight as I share it with you. The age of six uh, or seven, I was growing up in, in uh, Akron, Ohio. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My parents moved back to Akron because my father worked for Firestone Tire and Rubber. It snowed. School was canceled one day. It was like one of those free things. You know, I didn't even plan it. You know, that was what was so good about it. It was one of those things I didn't plan, and it was wonderful. You know, and it's one of those days where you don't have to go to school. And as a member, as a kid, that was really exciting. And I went out and shoveled snow all day long instead of staying in the house and watching cartoons with my brother. For some reason, I thought, if I go do this, I can make some money. I really don't know where that thought came from, but I went out and did it. My parents didn't even take me seriously. They figured I'd struggle with the walk out in front and then quit and come back in. Well, I finished the walk. lady called my mom and said, send Craig across the street if he wants to and shovel my walk. So I did that. Got done with hers, and she said the lady across the street called and wanted to know if you wanted to do his. And then Mr. called, and he said... And I had all these referrals going all, all day long. And I just kept shoveling snow all day long. At the end of that day, I had more money than I ever had in my whole life. And my parents didn't know that I had all the money, you know, more money than I ever had in my whole life. And the thought never occurred to me to take my 6 or $7, uh, which was uh, 40, you know, that was like 39 years ago. Okay, 6 or 7 bucks was a pretty good day's work. Uh, thought never occurred to me to take it home, put it in my piggy bank for, you know, when I was going to be a Boy Scout or something or college or whatever. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was going to my favorite place, and, uh, uh, which I really, really loved. And it was uh, something that I'll never forget the very first time my mother took me there. 
And as soon as the doors opened, I saw this big, beautiful marble bar with the stools that spun around on these stainless steel stands. And I saw this big, beautiful mirror behind the bar. And there were all these glasses piled up on there. And I thought to myself, this is, this is a beautiful place. And there were people in there. They seemed to be happy and talking and everything. And I was thinking, God, I love this. And there was a, this thing up there where they were drawing you know, uh, drafts and things like that. And, and here it was a soda fountain. But there was something about this atmosphere that I loved the very first time I walked in. Well, that's where I went with my six bucks. Thought never occurred to me to go home or even tell my parents. I'll never forget blowing into this place. It was called Blackie's. It was a little, uh, you know, uh, soda fountain and a little dime store type thing on the corner of Hillwood and somewhere in Akron, Ohio. And I'll never forget, I walked in that place started buying Cokes for everybody. And uh, I was immediately, without even consciously knowing, a little big shot. I was just immediately a big shot. And I just wanted to, you know, treat these people to this and, you know, trying to get Sundays for girls and, you know, all the other stuff. I was, I just had a blast. And I'm spending all this money. And I saw down at the end of the counter over where the candy was, there were model airplanes and model cars and everything. And I thought, you know, I think I'd like to have one of those. Now, the guy that I envied was Ernie. Ernie lived next door to us. And Ernie was 17, had a tattoo, uh, had a beautiful Chevrolet with chrome wheels, and had the motor sticking, and I thought, and he had these girlfriends, and I thought he was God. And I'll never forget, if he even looked at me, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. He even acknowledged my existence. And I remember he let me in his room one day, and I saw all these models he had built. And I was really awestruck by it. He had boats and fighter pilot, fighter planes, and he had cars and trucks. And I thought, well, if I build this model, then Ernie would, Ernie would, would, would accept me. He would really pat me on the back. So I spent about two or three dollars on this model. Now the model was basically, for someone who had the ability to build these things, had been working at it for years. Because this was about a 200-part model, and I'm six, and I could probably handle two parts where you glue two things together, and you put a decal on it, and you go show it to your dad. Uh, at six, that's really about all you can really manage. Well, I had the money, and I bought this thing, and I took it home, and I'll never forget, I went flying upstairs, and I opened up the box, put the picture right there on the front so I could see what the car looked like, and, uh, and I started to build this thing. And about two hours into this, I had made a mess out of it. I had parts all over the place. What I had constructed did not look remotely anything like that which was on the front of the box. Uh, matter of fact, the girl in the bathing suit on the front of the box was starting to frown because she knew I was failing miserably at this. And uh, my, my, my delusions of grandeur, you know, where I was going to be the kid that walks into school the next day and show and tell and be the envy of the rest of my class, were quickly going down the drain. I'd realized I'd wasted about two and a half dollars and several hours of my time, and I now had to go down and tell my father that I had just kind of destroyed this thing which I was going to create and build. And I'll never forget, I'm getting up to walk downstairs, and something is stuck on my foot. It's like one of the, you know, the Three Stooges things, and can't get it off, and I rip it off, and it's the instructions. Now, what's the point? The point is that at the age of six, I did not have the ability to ask for help. It never occurred to me, ever in my mind once, to go ask Ernie, take the model and say, Ernie, can you show me how to build this? It never even dawned on me to ask for help. I don't have an ask for helper. I don't have one of those in my body. I just got to go do it on my own uh, without ever reading instructions. And the point I'm trying to make here is I lacked humility from the day I was born. I did not have the ability to ask for help. And I, I guess that's just broken. I accept that today. But that object lesson went right over my head. And that little ball of uh, energy that was going to, you know, kind of impose his will over that model without reading any instructions and make it work failed. And, and, uh, uh, but that's basically 
kind of encapsulates me. I mean, I had enough energy to go out and shovel snow for seven hours and then do all these things, bring it home, and then I failed at this. That's a pretty good picture of exactly the way I was before adding alcohol. Now, at the age of 13, take that same little ball of energy with no ability to ask for help and, you know, uh, this self-will run riot, so to speak, based on self-centered fears and throw something flammable on it like alcohol. And the very first time I got drunk, I blacked out. I was 13 years old. We were sleeping out. We were doing our adventures of Huck Finn and, and, and uh, Tom Sawyer, you know, and we were down by the Cuyahoga River, you know, with a little uh, old mason's tub, you know, rafting down the thing, and we'd found a garage, we'd stole the beer, uh, and uh, we're drinking these warm strows. I'll never forget that. It was August night or something like that. I forget what it was. It was like tonight, about 85, 90 degrees. Beer was just as warm. And I remember sitting around this campfire, and I remember keeping this alcohol down because it was hard to keep it down. I wanted to throw up. But after about the third or fourth strows, I started to feel as warm as the fire. And everything slowed down and everybody was smiling and I had this unbelievable feeling about me. I didn't care about anything. I realized I was home. I was safe. I was tall. I was strong. I was funny. I was having the best time I've ever had in my whole life. I'll never forget the very instance that I felt that glow as warm as the bonfire. Never forget it. Never forget it. The only problem was it lasted about 20 minutes. And then I don't remember anything. It was gone as fast as I had gotten it. The only thing I can tell you about is the experience the next morning waking up or coming to, which was probably more, the, more what had happened. I heard voices. I knew it was the morning. Someone was talking about this clear day or something, and I couldn't see anything. I knew my eyes were open. And I was smelling all sorts of things like urine and throw up and you know, all sorts of other things, and, and I still can't focus. I can't find it. And here what's happening is I'm headfirst in my sleeping bag with my feet sticking out of the back end, and I don't realize where I am. And then I finally you know, get out of this thing like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon or something like that. Look, you know, pretty organic, and I'm naked. All I have on is my tennis shoes. And, you know, and then all of a sudden as I'm sort of coming to, I'm realizing that I'm sicker than I've ever been in my whole life. And I don't even know what I have. You know, I don't even know what I'm sick of. And I'm trying to put all these pieces back together as fast as I can. And it's still hot out and there's smoke from the fire. And, and, I'm, and I'm just feeling sick. And all of a sudden these guys are telling me, you were the funniest thing we've ever seen last night. As a matter of fact, we didn't know you were so funny. And I was thinking, God, that's great. I'm wondering, what did I do? I had no idea, but they had accepted me. They were, for the first time, I really felt as if I was the center of attention and I was something that they had accepted and they, they, they had a great time because of me. Now, I remember that and then all of a sudden I remember the alcohol. I remember drinking the strows. I could see the bottles. All of a sudden, all I could do at that point in time was think about the next time I was going to get drunk. I didn't care about it. It's the sickest I've ever been in my life. The fact that I'm naked in front of my friends, not knowing any idea what happened between the time I took my clothes off and waking up in the morning... I could have had sex with a squirrel for all I know. <laughs> At any rate, here I am trying to put these pieces together, and the very first thought was, i gotta find, I got to get some more of this stuff. And from that day on, from the age of 13, I tried and plotted and programmed a way to find a way to drink. Before I was 15, I was drinking every single day. I couldn't do anything unless I had alcohol in my system. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't go anywhere on a Friday Saturday night. I was drinking every chance I could get in between school. I was flicking classes. I was stealing money to do it. I'll never forget when I first gave a, a, my AA talk the first time. I talked. I said, you know, I w I'm one of the ones that they call the fortunate ones in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous whose bottom was sort of raised because of the experience of others. 
And it occurred to me, as I was telling you, you know, I never got a DUI. I was never fired from... I was thinking to myself, I was fired from my first job. I was 14 years old. I was a shoeshine locker room attendant at a country club. And I got drunk in the locker room stealing some booze. And I got fired from the first job I had when I was four. And I'd forgotten that. I'll never forget riding my bike home drunk. They called my mother to tell me that I had been drinking on the job. And, and I'll never forget. I was thinking, this is it. I'm over. My life is done. And when I got there, my mom was half in the bag. She was having a pool party or something. And she, she looked at me and she said, you're not drunk. There's nothing wrong with you. And I was thinking, thanks, God. I'll never forget I got off of that. I forgot that I had been fired from my first job at the age of 14. And uh, that didn't come to me till you know almost 18 months in sobriety. Well, here I am. I've got this disease, and I've got this this person, and then you just put something flammable on like alcohol, and then the drinking just escalated. Towards the end of my drinking, 13 years later, uh, I was drinking at least a fifth of whiskey every single day or more, straight, and hiding bottles every which where. Uh, and when there were opportunities where I absolutely couldn't drink in business situations, I would take a sedative. When I had to, when I had to substitute, just like Bill and Bob, you know, when I couldn't get the alcohol, bam, I took one of those, and my choice was get right back to the booze as fast as I could. But it had made a liar out of me, a cheat. Every bit of conviction uh, that I had was gone. Every bit of uh, morality that I had was gone because I lied, I cheated, I stealed, I did anything I could to get a drink and to keep drinking and to maintain that dependence on alcoholism. And I was a prisoner of alcohol from the very first time I drank until 13, 13 years later when I, when I had my uh, episode of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, I admitted to my parents when I was 24 years old uh, as I was laying in bed scared to death to go outside. Now look at this. Here I am, 24 years old. I'm laying in my bed. My dad's looking over me and he's saying, you're what? You're scared to go outside? You know, the sense of impending doom is something that only, I think, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous knows what that is when you read it in the big book. That's what I had. Dad, I have the sense of impending doom. Like, okay. I get that every day and I still go to work. They they don't understand, you know. And, And here I had this sense of impending doom and this unbelievable anxiety and confusion and terror and bewilderment just going inside of me and outside, but yet I couldn't communicate this. I was ashamed that I couldn't just get up and go to work without drinking. I was ashamed in front of my father. I told him, I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And my stepmother's standing right there and she goes, oh, isn't that wonderful? We just met a guy at Sears and he's an AA. Maybe we should have him help you. And I'm going, wait a second, what are you talking about? This is going a little quick. Sure enough, they called this guy named Freddie. And Freddie came over the very next night and he... Don't forget, he knocks on the door, I opened the door, and he looked like my grandfather. And he looked at me and he said, gee, you're a little young. And I says, I don't know what we're going to do with you, but come on, let's go to a meeting. And then he starts telling me about being an alcoholic. And he takes me into this hospital. Now, this is Akron, Ohio. And I'm thinking, you know, where am I going? We go into this hospital, we go up to the seventh floor, the door opens in the elevator, and there she is staring at me. Sister Mary Resentment was looking me square in the face. I'll never forget, there's a picture of a nun right there. With those thing, you know, that thing that they used to wear and their faces being squished out of it. Well, this immediately triggered something in me and said, religion. This is what this stuff is all about. There's the nun. Now, the reason I panicked when I saw this, because the last thing I could remember really about school uh, was when I told Sister Mary resentment uh, in the fourth grade to eat a sandwich. And that sandwich was filled with something. And you can sort of pick out whatever you want to put in that sandwich. But I told her to eat a blank sandwich in front of the class. Now, as soon as I said that, I realized in a minute, in a second, that that was stupid. That you don't tell a nun to eat a sandwich full of that stuff in front of the class. Now, she reacted so amazingly, she almost exploded. She couldn't believe she heard what she thought she heard. 
She came flying down, almost ripped my ear off, pulling me out of the seat, drags me up to the mother superior. At this point, she's worked up a nice froth. She could hardly speak when she tried to tell mother superior what I had said. She couldn't even, she didn't even want to repeat the words she said. The foam's coming out of her mouth. Now they're both in sort of a frenzy. And she's, she's looking for a bar of soap to wash my mouth out. There was none. But there was Baraxo powdered soap. So she got a handful of that and just went like this, went poof, just sort of landed a little cloud of it in my face. My eyes are watering. It's coming out my nose. I'm dry heaving. And they're trying to punish me. And they're telling me that God, you know, and this is the agent of God, right? These are God's agents. I've screwed up big time. And I got kicked out of school for, I think, over a week. And when I came back to school, even though I was in the fourth grade, I had to sit in the second grade in the little seats. And I had to wear a little thing on me that said, I'm in the fourth grade, but since I act like a second grader, I'm in the second grade. And I had to sit in the back and have this thing pinned on me for what seemed like an eternity, but maybe it was a day or two, but I don't remember. But all I remember is I was, I was absolutely ashamed of what I had done. And, and, and I associated her with religion and my last relationship with God, and I figured, you know, at the age of uh, eight or whatever you are in the fourth grade, I figured I was on my way down fast. Here she is again. And here it was Sister Ignatia. Uh, and I was taken to St. Thomas Hospital where Bill and Bob would take the drunks that they would find in Akron, Ohio, and this wonderful nun would take care of them and help them to recover. And this is where this guy would go to his meetings. So he takes me up to Sister Ignatia Hall. I have no idea where I am in terms of AA's legacy and its, and its history. And I'm just trying to figure out when I can get out of this place. He takes me in the back and he wants to know if I want a vitamin B12 shot. I was thinking, do you do that with lime and, and salt or do you take it straight up? You know, what is this vitamin B12 shot? Do you do these... And it was a shot in the rear end. And I said, no, I'll pass, thanks, you know. And, and I'll never forget these guys were shuffling around, you know, just, you know, sober a day with their, these hospital things on with their rear ends hanging out. This was my new group of friends. This is where Freddie brought me, you know. I wasn't impressed. They took me to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, the, uh, a club in, in Cuyahoga Falls, which is where Freddie lived. And for some odd reason, a very young girl was speaking that night. But I didn't hear a thing because I was a girl and I'm a guy. And I was into the comparison sort of thing. And I was not identifying. I was comparing very quickly that you were different and I was this. Sat in that parking lot after that meeting and swore up and down that I was going to control my drinking. Just like it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They say, you know what? We think that's a great idea that you try that. Go ahead and try to control your drinking. Go do it. Go see if you can have a few. Go out and do it. Because we want you convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are powerless over alcohol. And I did it for another year and a half. Knowing the seed had been planted knowing that I really did have something in common with those people, knowing that there was a way out, the seed had been planted, but I wasn't ready. And the next year and a half was pure hell. Knowing that there was an alternative and continuing to rationalize and lie to myself and justify the lying and the behavior that I had and missing work and, and stealing from people that meant something to me and every conviction and courage I had was just gone. March 6, 1978, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I had known that the seed had been planted, and I had just had it. And I said three words. I said, God, help me. And he has. And I'd like to tell you that this is where it really gets good, but, you know, the struggles can started at this point. I checked myself into a detox center a couple blocks down because I knew the medical director. We used to play golf together. And I figured I could, you know, get some clout or something maybe a good bed or something and I was in there no more than 10 hours and I had told him that I knew the medical director was a personal friend and, and I'll never forget he came in the next day and was kind of smiling that I was in there and I was ashamed I thought first you know I said geez Andy I'm you know 
I hope you don't, you know, think less of me, but, you know, I, I've had to, I need, I need help. And, he, and I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, he just kind of laughed. And he said, man, I was, I said, I didn't know whether you'd ever get here. And I was surprised that he knew about more about me than he did. And he knew so much about me that he said, and I'm checking you out of here today. So we talking about, he says, well, you know, we're pretty good friends and I can't have you here. He was a pretty good Al-Anon. He was a good doctor of Alcoholics Anonymous and he was one of my best friends. And he said, I'm too close to you because you're going to need to hear some things and you're going to want to hear them from me. So he ships me not to the Betty Ford, let's go have some fun in sobriety clinic. I get shipped to this place called a sanitarium in central Ohio and it's like a dungeon. It's a, it's a place where they had terminally ill you know, patients and, 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 and uh, 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 a place where they had some insane people and and of course I wasn't insane and uh, I was sane you know and I just couldn't drink normally at any rate uh, I'll never forget driving down to this place I was scared to death and I mean it was an old state hospital in central Ohio I didn't know anybody it was gray and clouds formed over the top of the place when we pulled up I swear that and we weren't on the third floor the second floor the first floor the alcoholics were in the basements bars on the window this is true the gray floors the pipes on the ceiling the whole thing it's perfect perfect way to start your life I went into my room and I never came out for three days. I was not like the rest of those alcoholics. I was different. I was different. I was different. And they told me that eventually they'd have to come out and eventually they would want me to go to some of these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because that was the only way they knew that would help me stay sober once I left this institution, if I left the institution. And they said, a sponsor uh, or a man will come down and talk to you about the fellowship and... You know, you need to get a sponsor. Well, this, I'll never forget this first guy came down. His name was Dave. Dave looked different than I did. I immediately sized him up and thought, no way. Dave had a huge tattoo and a leather coat and boots like I'd never seen before. And he had muscles bigger than my legs in his arms. And, you know, he had a Harley Davidson or something. I don't know what he rode down there. But at any rate, he was different than me. And I just immediately said, no way. He started describing to me his last drunk where he tried to kill his wife with a butcher knife. And, and that's where drinking had taken him. And, all, and I could see the beads of sweat forming on his forehead. And I was thinking, this guy's crazy. And I was thinking, I don't have anything in common with him. And I asked him to hold on for one second. I left the room. I went down for the first time. I think I left my room. went down to the counselor and opened up the door. And Donna said, what do you want? And I said, this guy that you sent down, is this going to be my sponsor? And he, he said, no, he's just here to talk to you. And I would never forget how relieved I was. I thought this guy was going to kill me. I go back down and listen to the rest of his talk. And he leaves. Thank God. Next day, another man comes down. Except this guy was a little different. He had gray hair. Had a nice tweed jacket on. Had suede patches on the elbow, you know. Had penny loafers on. Had a nice cotton shirt with the buttons on it. Had a pipe. And there was tobacco that was real aromatic, you know. And, it came on, and he was really distinguished. And he was a professor of law. Now, I was thinking, if I'm going to be a member of the uh, Amoebas of America, you know, this Alcoholics Anonymous, I was going to have a professor of law for my sponsor because I thought that was kind of romantic and, you know, I thought it might be one uppity and I might have a better, you know, and I needed an attorney. That was probably the best, the best reason. So I chose him uh, to be my sponsor, and we, had, we did have the greatest relationship that I can, I mean, it was just the greatest. I never called Hollis, and Hollis never called me. And, uh, and I left that place saying that I did have a sponsor, which I never used. Plain and simple. Now, how did I stay sober? How did I stay dry? This is what I did. I played golf six days a week, and I went to one meeting a week. I read in Bill's story about when he played golf. You know, he had an impeccable coat of tan, and, except he was bouncing checks, and he was qualifying to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the heyday of his drinking. I didn't associate that with the golf. I associated the golf with recovery. And... Uh, 
Uh, and then I went to one meeting a week because I was afraid not to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew that they were doing something to stay sober, and I knew I couldn't associate with my old friends, so I would just play golf alone all the time and go to one meeting a week. But I never called my sponsor. Now, in the midst of all this, uh, I can remember uh, the, uh, one of the experiences I was having when playing golf alone and cheating. And I would do this a lot. I mean, all the time I played, I would cheat. Now, I really emphasize this for, for one point. Who am I cheating? But it didn't occur to me. I mean, I would miss shots and say that didn't count. What do you mean it doesn't count? I mean, I'd lived under the delusion that I could drink normally, you know, for almost a year and a half. I thought, and, and to believe in a del- the delusion, as I understand today, is to actually believe in something that's wrong. But when I'm playing golf, I'm in denial that I actually missed that shot. And I sort of just said, well, you know, I could deny that I was here tonight talking. Uh, you could all swear I was here, but I could deny it. Knowing that I was here, I could deny it. Uh, and uh, that's basically how I lived. And I would play golf alone and cheat. And I could never understand why nobody wanted to play golf with me. And it just never occurred that they didn't like me or that I cheated. Here I was playing golf alone and cheating. I was on a par five. I'd hit my tee shot. And I was ready to hit my second shot. And there were some people on the green. And this was so far away that I never thought I could ever hit it. Par five, it takes three shots usually to hit the green. I projected in my mind a little inventory. I'd read a book, first time, uh, about golf. Because I'd played golf all my life and never had a lesson. I mean, remember the little kid who never asked for help? Well, I, golf was the same way. You just grip the club as hard as you can, hit the ball as hard as you can, and if you miss, you don't count it. And that's the same way I took life. I mean, I did the same thing with life. Uh, if something doesn't work, lie, cheat, or it didn't matter. Or it never happened. At any rate... I projected in my mind this little inventory that uh, I read of this book that you should do if you want to be a good golfer. It was written by a guy named Jack Nicklaus. So here I am, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to just try to lay the shot up. I'm not even going to try to hit it on the green where they are. I'll just hit a little shot up. I'll project in my mind a mental inventory like Jack Nicklaus says you should in order to hit a good golf shot, and I did it. And I actually took a less club, and I, and I actually approached this first shot since I've been playing golf with humility. First time I ever swung a golf club with any sense of humility in my life. Because I always just grab as hard as I can. Swing as hard as you can. Played a nice easy shot. Did the inventory. Hit the ball. Ball takes off like a missile. Matter of fact, I don't think to this day I've ever hit a golf shot as good as this. This ball keeps going and going and going and going. I even checked the club to make sure I took out the right club because I wasn't supposed to hit it this far. And it was the most effortless swing I'd ever done. uh, But I just sort of easy did it. You know, I mean, I easy did this golf shot. All of a sudden I realized I've hit it so well it's going to hit the green where the people are. And I go, forward. And the ball hits and just missed the man standing there. Now, if you've ever played golf, what I've just described, you can get thrown off the golf course for this. I mean, you can kill people with golf balls. And, and uh, it's a very uh, unpopular way to do it. It, it. There's no etiquette involved. You're being very self-centered. Uh, hey, that was me. And uh, here I am walking up to the green to apologize to this person I almost killed. And it's this new guy I saw at the meeting that I would go to one time once a week. Now, I'll never forget when I saw this guy in the end of the room. He'd never been in the group before. And I was just rolling around the room in my self-centered way saying, Hey, I'm great, fantastic, wonderful, how are you? I hated you. I didn't want to be here. I wasn't working the steps. Uh, and I was, you know, uh, just a big phony. And uh, I saw him back there and I went over to him and I said, Hey, if you keep coming to these meetings, these people can help you. And he looked at me and he kind of smiled. And he had a cigarette, you know, palm all cigarette stuck on his lip with ash hanging on the end of it. And he had his coat hung over his left arm and his tie was undone his hair was kind of mustered up and I said you know if you keep coming to these meetings these people can help you and he smiled at me he said tanks 
And then I went on my self-centered way, you know, doing whatever I was doing, lying and telling I was fine and wonderful when I wasn't. I hated you. I hated being there. Blah, blah, blah. Well, here's this new guy again. Now, I almost killed him with a golf ball. So I apologized. Just before I apologized, as a matter of fact, he said, that was a nice shot, he said. And I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I forgot to even apologize. And, and uh, he, he asked if I would join his group. There was only three, and we made four. And, and I said, okay, thank you. And we played the rest of the round together. Now, after we got done, I thought, he's new, take him to a meeting. So I looked at him and I said, do you want to go to a meeting? He looks at me and he goes, sure, he says. So we get in the car, we start driving. Driving along and I'm telling him about this meeting we're going to go to. It's an open meeting. Then I'm telling him, you know, in AA we've got closed meetings and we've got discussion meetings and there's meetings for men and there's meetings for women and I'm trying to think about what's going on in AA because I'm telling this guy. And we got to the group, <clears throat> a Saturday night Copley meeting and that was a lead meeting or speaker meeting. After the meeting was over, it occurred to me, fellowship. I've heard this in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at this guy and I said, do you want to go get something to eat? He looked at me and he goes, sure, he says. So we get in a car and now we're driving. I'm thinking, this is great. I'm driving to a restaurant. And uh, now I'm telling him about, okay, now in Alcoholics Anonymous we have a big book and we have uh, literature that we read. And I'm thinking to myself, I probably should start reading some of this literature. I'll never forget that very thought. And I'm driving along and I'm trying to be really diligent about this recovery and I'm telling him about uh, now, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship. You know, I'm trying to remember the preamble. And, and I said, we have an intergroup office. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder where it is. I wish I could tell him where it is. And I didn't even know where it was. And, and I'm realizing I don't know very much about this, but I'm trying to tell this guy how to stay sober. And we get to the, to the restaurant, and we're, you know, we've already ordered, and I'm just yakking like a little parrot. You know? And all I have to give this new guy is what I like to call bumper sticker sobriety. Because all I could tell him was, like, read the big book, don't drink, go to meetings. Read the big book, go to meetings, don't drink. I mean, that, that's really all I was like, this little parrot. And all I could remember were the little things I saw you know, on the walls, and that's about all I had to offer. Now, here we are at this restaurant. I finally have, you know, I'm chewing my food. And this is the first time that this person's even had a chance to say anything, right? We've met three times now. And he asked me about something that was in the big book. And I didn't recollect where I'd uh, you know, read that. And I kind of let that roll off my shoulders. Well, I'm not familiar with that part of the big book, I said. Or I don't remember where it is. Then he asked me about something that was in the 12 and 12. And I thought to myself, what is the 12 and 12? I mean, what is it? I know I've seen it, but I don't know what it is. And uh, I told him I didn't really quite know what that was. And... All of a sudden, my brain kicked into gear for the third time, and I thought to myself, maybe he's not new. <laughs> yeah, maybe he... And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I asked him, I said, how long have you been in AA? And I said it really loud in a restaurant. And a couple people heard us. Now, I've almost hit him with a golf ball, killed him earlier. Now, I've blown his anonymity in a restaurant. And I'll never forget when I asked him, how long has he been in AA? He looked at me with those little beady eyes and he said, A reasonable length of time, Craig. What else do you know is in the big book? And I'll never forget how long it took for me to swallow. My body temperature went up 100 degrees. I started to sweat. I was thinking, Oh my God, this guy's not new. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to sponsor him, you know. And, and I said, I'm sorry. I better, would you please tell me how long you've been sober? And he goes, It's not important. Mm, 16, no, 17 years, he says. <gasps> I was going to sponsor this guy. What's the point? The point is, I'm dry, 
18 months in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know the difference between 17 days and 17 years. Now, I was dry around the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I had not started to really dig in and work steps and, and get into recovery because I couldn't tell the difference between someone with 17 days and 17 years of sobriety. Cunning, baffling, powerful. Definitely a thinking disease. Now, here's the situation. A couple of days after this, my sponsor, Hollis, whom I'd never used, suffers a massive heart attack. He's in the hospital. It occurs to me to go see him. I go in, and I'll never forget walking into Akron City Hospital, where Dr. Bob used to do his, his surgery, and going up on this uh, hospital to see Hollis. And I walk in the room, and Hollis immediately has got all these tubes hooked up, and he lights up when he sees me. And he says, God, Craig, he says, I'm glad to see you. I was just thinking about you. He says, I want to talk to you. And he said, I'm getting concerned about you. You've been around the rooms. You haven't been really working the steps. You need to start to get active in Alcoholics Anonymous. You need to get a foundation built. You need to get busy. And he started to tell me about some of this stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, I was asked to moderate a panel tomorrow in Akron called uh, the Old Timers Panel at, at their Gratitude Sunday. And he said, Craig, that's exactly what I'm talking about, that kind of work. And... And I'll never forget, uh, I went to that panel, and here I am moderating this panel of old timers. I mean, some of these people have been sponsored by Bill and Bob. They knew Bill and Bob when they were alive. And I'm moderating a panel of these people? And at 3 o'clock on Sunday, I remember Hollis was having his operation, and I said a prayer for him. I'll never forget I said a prayer for Hollis, that he'd make it through that operation and that God's will be done. And I don't ever remember praying for anybody. And I got home that night, and I called his wife. I said, Flo, this is Craig. I don't know that we've met, uh, but I was calling to see how Hollis was. And she just broke into tears and she said, he died today. He didn't make it through his operation. And it just occurred to me in that very instance when I heard that news that this man was gone. And I never really knew this person who was my sponsor. I never really, really talked and opened up and shared and did the things you're supposed to do. He's gone. And something happened and I'll never forget it. I said, Flo, is there anything I can do to help? And she said, could you come over? I got, I got, could you get some milk and some bread? I don't know if our kids can go to school tomorrow. I don't know what I need to do. And I just immediately went over. First time I'd ever been to my sponsor's house. Uh, and, and I helped her do, for the next couple of days, whatever needed to be done in order to help her bury her husband. And something amazing happened. In doing this and in trying to help her, I realized what a great man I had let slip through my fingers. Hollis had started one of the greatest meetings in Akron, Ohio, Men's Tuesday Night Hilltop, which was a powerful men's discussion group, and, and which I used to, that was that one meeting a week I used to go to. And I'd never used this guy, and he was gone. And in the arrangements, I never realized how many people he knew, not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but in Akron itself. And there were people and mayors and, and, and deans of the universities and, and hundreds of members of Alcoholics Anonymous coming to just, they were crying because this person was gone. And I didn't even know who he was. And what really blew my mind was when I walked into that room in the hospital to see Hollis, this didn't occur to me till later, that we never once talked about him, that the very first thing he did was look out for me. He's going to have a triple bypass the next day. He's got wires and things stuck in his nose. And he is worried about me. And I didn't get it. And he's gone. And this sort of brought me to, in some instance, I sort of realized, my God, I, I, he's gone. And all these people are talking about how great he was, what a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I never even used him. Now, here I am wandering around Akron, Ohio, sponsorless, and I go to this Thursday night meeting. 
And it happened to be closed because it was Thanksgiving night. Church was closed that day, one of the only times in the year. And I'm turning around to leave, going to the parking lot to drive away, and this car pulls up, and I figured it's someone who was going to the meeting, and it's this new guy, George, that I was going to sponsor. I run into him. Again, I'm sure he sees me, and he probably wants to turn around and drive away as fast as he can. And, oh, my God, here comes that guy. He got out of the car, and I said, hey, the, the meeting's closed. Would you want to go you know, get some coffee or something? He said, sure. And that night I asked George to be my sponsor because my, the sponsor I never used was gone. And when I asked George if he'd be my sponsor, he looked at me and he said, why? And I wanted to kill him. I was thinking in my self-centered, pompous, arrogant way, well, simply because I asked you should be enough. That's the mindset that I was. And he, he knew I was burning up and he said, no, I, he says, I really want to know why. He said, don't you even wonder whether I have a sponsor? Don't you even wonder whether I've worked the steps? Don't you even wonder if I have a home group? Don't you even know if I sponsor other people? I said, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. You know, do you have a home group? Do you sponsor other people? Do you have a sponsor? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we kind of laughed a little bit. And he said, yeah. I said, but I want you to do some things, though, when we work these steps together. And I said, fine. And I need, I need to have a sponsor. I kind of feel like I'm lost all of a sudden. And, uh, and he calmed me down immediately. He said, do you have a dictionary? And I immediately said, yes. I didn't have a dictionary. I just would automatically say things like that, you know, to get it somebody's approval. It was just automatic. It was like, yeah, but. Uh, say something, yeah, sure. You know, never even think whether it was honest or not. And he said, I want you to look up a couple of words. Sure. We and I. Oh, my God. I'm thinking, who doesn't know the difference between we and I? And I swear to God he could read my thoughts. I said, well, who doesn't know the difference? He said, well, you don't. You know, you got yourself to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, your own basic uh, approach to life got you here, but we can keep you sober. And, you know, I didn't understand really what he meant by the we, because all my life it was me, 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 I, 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 I am the center of the universe. I didn't know what we meant. The we was a strange word. At any rate, I didn't know the difference, and he helped point that out. Now, it was different. My sponsor had died. I was sort of woken up, uh, and I started to do what this sponsor asked me to do, and we worked through the steps together. We worked through the first three steps. He gave me those nine paragraphs to read that I talked about at the very beginning here uh, so that I had an anchor so that he clearly knew that I had read certain basic things about what this recovery was all about and what had to happen and the spiritual experience, which was paramount to this recovery. And we started to work the steps. We went through the first three together and we did the third step prayer and, uh, and then we got busy in the inventory. Now, in this inventory, you know, I took the time to write and with his direction and the direction of the big book and uh, some other things that I used to be as thorough as I could. Now, the thing about the fourth step was the fifth, was that you had to read this to someone else. And I'll never forget driving over to my sponsor's house that night to read this, or that day, when the time came, I stopped at a stop sign and I thought, you don't need to do this. You've written, you don't need to do this. And I'll never forget, I almost turned around and just called him to make an excuse why I didn't have to be there. But for some reason, I just ended up driving on, and I went to his house, and I did this fifth step. And we'll break this into three areas and go on to the next. In this inventory, I looked at resentments, and he asked me if I'd looked those word, that word up, and I said, yeah, I had. And he said, what does it mean? I used to hate that. I mean, I looked it up, but he also wanted to know, what does it mean? And so I would sort of baffle off some idea of what I thought it was. And, I, you know, to me, it meant to, to live in the past, to refill the hurt of the past. And George looked at me and he'd say, why do you want to live in the past? And it never occurred to me that that's what I was doing, living in the past in the present. And then he also pointed out to me that the inventory was mine, 
and that in this resentful life that I had, I had to eliminate the word blame from my dictionary, from my vocabulary, from my brain, because this is my inventory, not my mom's, not my girlfriend's, not the police, not Sister Mary resentment, my inventory. What did I do in these situations to provoke them? What could I have done to, to be different? Where could I have been forgiving and understanding? What could I have done to change me, not the world outside me? And I began to accept those certain truths about resentments and what it meant to live in the hurt and feel that in the past. And I began to realize after my sponsor showed me in the big book where we just stop blaming people and places and things and God and everything else for our problems and we, and we accept that we have done what we have done. And you know, when I bit off that bit of truth and swallowed it, it tasted a heck of a lot better than whiskey does at 6.30 in the morning. Anybody have a shot of whiskey at 6.30 in the morning to start your day after one of those nights and you get one of those? And that truth didn't hurt. Now, when I wasn't resenting the past, I was fearing the future. When I wasn't living in the past, I immediately shifted to the future. The very first thing that occurred to me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in March... 6th of 1978 what am I going to do with the Christmas party nine months from now when everybody knows I'm not drinking very first thought that occurs to me that's living in the future 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 it was automatic to me now my sponsor said look the word up yeah look up what does it mean Craig well it kind of means to you know kind of preempt or have an idea about something that really may never even happen you know you have a programmed idea of what you think is going to happen in the future and as a result of that you don't do anything right now you just paralyze yourself you don't take any action. And he basically pointed out to me that they're basically a lack of faith. The reason why I'm afraid to move is because I lack faith. Then he began to show me. He says, you know, you've been coming to meetings for a couple of days, right? And you haven't been drinking, right? You have the faith that if you not drink that you'll actually get through that day. And I said, well, yeah, I do. The people in Alcoholics Anonymous show me that every day. And he says, that's what I'm talking about. You create action. You get more faith that tomorrow will be well if you just do today what they ask you to do. And I realized I had actually had some faith, but I had faith in Alcoholics Anonymous, not in God. But he showed me that that's what that was. That was faith. And I could accept that. And I also realized that I was living in the future. Now, when I wasn't resenting the past or fearing the future, I was experiencing guilt about sex in the present. Or actually, in my inventory, the guilt about lack of sex in the present. <clears throat> and I'll never forget, when I had to read to my sponsor these things uh, about my sexual activity uh, to another man and uh, that I really didn't know all that well uh, and I read all these things off and I read through that whole page as fast as I could I didn't look up I was embarrassed I didn't want to say anything I was sweating I was ashamed I couldn't believe it. I was even reading this stuff to him and I looked up after I'd read it and he was yawning and I'll never forget it and I caught him yawning and he was a little embarrassed that I caught him yawning and then he knew that I caught him and he said well it was boring he said boring I'm thinking and then George shared some of his sex life with me and my mouth flew open I'm going God I didn't even know you could do things like that like wow that's amazing isn't that against the law I'm thinking and the point was of all this as I shared this fifth step with him and it talked about lots of other things about anger and envy and resentments and jealousy and, and arrogance and pompousness and, and being deceptive and delusional and all these other things it occurred to me uh, later on that basically I had revealed my entire self to another human being. I had really laid it down in front of another of God's children, another man. And and that something happened that day. I'll never forget when I got done. It took us a couple hours. We broke and had lunch. And, you know, I hummed and hawed. I cried. I was, I laughed. Uh, he cried. He laughed. I mean, we had, it was an interesting experience through the course of that day. 
And he said three things to me when we were done that day. I'll never forget it. He said, I forgive you for everything that you've done. And he said, God forgives you for everything that you've done. And he said, I now want you to spend the rest of your life forgiving yourself for what you've done. And he planted a seed of self-respect, but I didn't realize it at the time. He really planted a seed inside of me that started to grow. I couldn't see it. But for the first time in my life, I'd kind of pulled out the weeds. I'd pruned all the, the you know, the, the, the character defects. I identified them. I tried to yank out the ones or at least see the patterns of my existence, how I got into trouble. Uh, and he helped me really see where I was creating a lot of the problems in my life. But this time the seed sort of took hold, but I didn't realize it. Now, I'd like to tell you this is where I got sober and everything was great. But, no. I started playing golf more and going out with girls. And when my sponsor would say, well, did you make car? No, that's for the new person. And, you know, I didn't need to empty ashtrays because that was for the new guy. And, and what do you mean pick up a new guy and take him to a meeting? What if he pukes in my car? I was thinking that would be an inconvenience. And I, I need to, you know, I want to go out and date some girls now and have some fun and play more golf. And this happy dry drunk that I'm on, okay, my... First dry drunk I experienced was the very first day I got sober, which was self-pity. I don't want to be an alcoholic. I'm going to stay in my room. I don't want to be a member of Amoebas Anonymous. And that was a self-pity dry drunk. And now I'm on the happy dry drunk, sort of the pink cloud, and I'm going to have fun, and the new people can do that, or somebody else can have the ashtrays, or, you know, pick up new guys or whatever and put the chairs away. I'm going to go have fun, man. And I did that. Now, that got worse. That happy dry drunk soon turned into what my sponsor calls a spiritual dry drunk, where because I'd already worked a few steps, I kind of thought I could take a group's inventory now. And if the group didn't do things the way I thought, I'd just sort of gossip to other people and say, you know, I wouldn't go to that group because they don't read how it works. Now, how can that be a good meeting of alcoholics not so they don't read how it works? Or I'd start to gossip about a certain person that I didn't like uh, or that I didn't think recovery suited what I thought was recovery, and I'd gossip about these people, and I tried to help destroy them a couple of meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm on this spiritual dry drug now, folks. I mean, I have a little bit of knowledge. I've worked my fifth step, thank you. And I'm going to pass judgment on those in Alcoholics Anonymous that don't work a program the way I see fit. And I was on this for a while. And I got a letter from the 25th International Conference of Young People of Alcoholics Anonymous asking me if I would come to their conference in New York City. And I, before I even finished the letter, I had to call my sponsor to tell him this great honor that had been bestowed on me since I was so smart. And I called up George to tell him how good I was, and he interrupted me in the very beginning of that conversation, and he said, did you look up those words I gave you? And I was, I forgot totally what he said. I said, what words? Pompous, arrogance, conceit, etc. And he proceeded to fire me. He told me that he saw me at the meeting the night before, and that there was a new guy in the back of the room, and he asked me if I had shook in that person's hand. I didn't shake that new guy's hand. I was going to go out on a date or something that night. And that infuriated him. That, to him, was the last straw. And he was going to fire me. He says, as a matter of fact, if that's your idea of recovery, it stinks, he said. And I think you should go find another sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous that can help give you the message. Because obviously, Craig, I'm not giving it to you. You don't understand what we're trying to do here. You saw a new person and you didn't even go up and help them. As far as I'm concerned, you're this close to a drunk. And as far as I'm concerned, you need to get another sponsor that can help you because I don't evidently have the tools to help you. And I think I've dialed the wrong number. I called this guy. I did. I called him to tell him that these people knew how smart I was. Yeah. And waiting these words. And, and, and I realized he was firing me. And I said, wait a second. Don't fire me. I said, I'll look up the words right now. And I pulled the dictionary right down the shelf. And I said, 
pompous, oh, see, conceited, self-centered, etc. And I said, these words are all related. And he goes, yeah, they are, aren't they? He's trying to help me. And I looked up these words and I realized I was a mess. I was really, I was on a drunk except there wasn't any alcohol in me. And I didn't know it. I didn't realize I was that close to a drink. I went to 21 meetings that week. That's as many meetings as you can go to in Akron, Ohio, hitting every single meeting that you could conceivably drive to. And I didn't find another sponsor. Unfortunately, my sponsor didn't fire me that day. Now, just before I hung up the phone, he said, what was in that letter? Oh, yeah, that's right, the reason I called. Oh, the group wants, the Yiki Pond wants me to be on a panel. What's the topic, he said. I'll never forget that. I said, will you just give me a minute? I'm reading this. Humility. That was the topic of the panel I'm supposed to be on. Now, in my sponsor's kitchen, this linoleum floor, he started laughing so hard he dropped the phone. On the linoleum floor, and he starts this convulsion of laughing. Now, my sponsor got sober in New Orleans. He's a Cajun. He's hard to understand. He speaks like French and Bostonian are mixed together, and he smokes about 50 packs of cigarettes a day, and it's hard to understand him. He's going, and he looks like Yoda, you know? And he's just quivering and laughing and all this stuff. He's laughing at me. And, I, and he finally gets his composure. I can hear him pick up the phone off the floor. And, and then just before he starts to say, because he smokes three packs of palm all day, he starts his coughing convulsion because he's laughed so hot. And he starts, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, now he's going to die. And I could just see this old guy getting ready to die on the other end of the phone. Now he finally gets that in control, and then he he gets the phone and he goes, "What are you gonna say?" <laughs> and that was one of the greatest days of my life. That's the day I don't ever, 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 ever want to forget because that's the day I changed. That's the day I got a moment of clarity. That's the day I realized that this was a real disease, that this was a terminal disease, that this was a progressive disease, that this was a disease that was cunning, baffling and powerful. And I immediately went to a meeting that night, the young people's meeting, and that new guy that was there the night before that didn't shake his hand was there again. And I went over across the room and stuck my hand. <laughs> my name is Craig. If I don't say hi to you, my sponsor's going to kill me. And I said, my name is Craig. Is there anything I can do to help you? And I'll never forget, Scotty looks up through his long, greasy hair at me, and he said, hi, my name is Scotty. I said, could you give me a ride home after the meeting? I said, Scotty, I'd love to. And after the meeting, I'll never forget taking Scotty. Scotty was 14 years old. And I'm driving him back. I picked up a big book right off the, uh, the, the uh, uh, counter. And as we were leaving, I was explaining to him, I said, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is our owner's manual or however you want our instructions, uh, whatever. And I suggest that you start to get familiar with it. And I was able to share with him how I really didn't know much about it, that I had just started to work with a sponsor after being around. And we're driving to the part of Akron I've never been in before. Matter of fact, he's telling me how to get there. There's no more street lights. Every car I've driven past, there's no tires on it. There's no doors on it. Uh, I swear I'm hearing gunshots. Uh, you know, every other window and every house is broken out. And I'm in a slum. I've never been here. I'm uncomfortable, as a matter of fact. I am really uncomfortable with where I am. This is this guy's neighborhood. And we pull up into his front yard. His stepfather is on the porch drunk on the couch. His older sister's baby that's like two years old is out walking in the street dirty at 10 o'clock at night. Mom comes out of the kitchen, uh, out of the, open, swings open the door on the porch. I'll never forget it. It's a screen door with no screens. It's like, why don't you just rip the thing off? There's, you know, there's nothing in it, so just take it off. 
And she comes out and she goes, hi, how are you? And Scotty says, come on and meet my mom. And I said, no, no, listen, i got to go. I didn't want to be there. And he drags me into the house and he says, hi, mom, uh, this is this is my sponsor. I said, sponsor? You never asked me to be your sponsor. We're talking about sponsor. And and uh, he wants me to come in and have coffee. I don't, don't want to go in your house. I'm thinking, God, you know, I want to get out of here. And uh, he takes me into the kitchen. I never saw a kitchen like this in my life. It was just, it was dirt. And and he knew I was kind of taken back by it. He says, ah, oh, don't worry about it. He says, you know what? This place is so neat. He said, we don't even use roach motels. When the roaches run across the kitchen, they get stuck on the floor, and we just step on them, he says. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I am ready to go. I was clearly uncomfortable for all the wrong reasons. I got in my Jeep. I'm no more than two blocks away, and I started crying. I started crying harder than I think I'd ever cried in my life, thinking, why am I so lucky to have what I have and to be where I am and to have what I have? It just occurred to me in a second that I have been given a great opportunity in life. I didn't realize how fortunate I was and that my apartment, uh, you know, was in a different part of town and it was a lot safer and I had that going for me and he didn't have that going for him. And I called him the next day. I didn't wait for him to call me. I called Scotty. Scotty, what are you doing? He said, nothing. I said, I'll be right over. Drive over to town, pick him up, and I'd like to take him over to, to a golf course. Now, he's never been there before. He doesn't even know what it is. He says, what is it? I said, it's a golf course. What are we doing here? I said, just get out. We get out of the car, get around the back, open up the trunk, give him my golf clubs. What are these? Those are my golf clubs. You're going to carry them. We go up to the first tee. We're playing in an AA golf league that me and some guys started. And I can see my friends in AA going, oh, Jesus, Craig. This is not what we had in mind when we talk about working with new people. You don't use them for caddies. You know what I mean? You're supposed to help them get sober. They're not supposed to drag your golf clubs around. And I'm figuring I'm doing this guy a favor. You know? So anyway... We, we go through this round of golf together, and he kind of liked being out on this golf course. He thought it was great. He'd never been on one of these before. And <laughs> he kind of got a hang for the game a little bit, and I hit a ball behind a tree, and he kicks it out. He says, and I said, no, no, we don't do that anymore. Our splashes right over there. We can't do this. And he said, well, yeah, but it's, you know, you're going to have a bench. No, 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 we call that rationalization, Scotty. And, and so we put the ball back, and we played it out with town strokes. Now, at the end of that golf round, I gave him some money, and I said, you know the big book we gave you last night? Yeah, I said, it's paid for. I'll put some money in the basket tonight. You made that money carrying the golf bag. Now, Scotty and I became like, like we were sewn together at the hips. I just immediately loved this guy. And and uh, he asked me the very next day if I would take him to court. I said, you know, what do you mean court? He said, well, i got to go to court. I said, okay, tell me about this. So we're driving to this court thing. He says, well, you know, I'm 14. He says, but they kicked me out of the detention home. They don't want me there anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I get in trouble when I'm there. I said, isn't that where you're supposed to go when you get in trouble? He says, yeah, but I'm too young to put in prison, and they don't want me there anymore because I create so much I said, what have you been in there for? Well, I, I broke and I entered and I burned a bar and I did this, and I'm thinking, you're only 14 years old. And I said, and he, I said where's your dad? And he said, well, my dad was killed when I was eight years old in a drug deal. He said it, he was shot in the head. And Scotty lived in a carnival. I mean, it, he traveled around and he was a guy selling tickets at a carnival. And I took him into this parole thing or whatever the heck it was and, 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 and we walk into this place and the judge sees Scotty and he immediately recognizes him. And Scotty looks at the judge and goes, Eddie, how you doing? I'll never forget it. I'm going, you don't call the judge Eddie, you call him your honor. And Eddie looks at, or the judge, I mean, looks at him and goes, what are you doing here? And Scotty goes, well, I'm here. And then the judge immediately looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? Who are you? And Scotty goes, that's my sponsor. I said, you never asked me to be your sponsor. What are you talking about? <laughs> Look like Laurel and Hardy. I'll never forget that. So the, the judge looks at me and he goes, sponsor. And, and, and Scotty goes, I'm going to AA. And the judge's eyes light up. He goes, you're going to Alcoholics Anonymous? 
And he said, yeah. And he said, good. Get out of here. So we left. Now, what would you do with a guy like Scotty? We were involved in the Young People's Conference. We were uh, involved in the Ohio State Young People's Conference, and we were ready to go to New York to put a bid in. We put Scotty in charge of ra selling raffle tickets because he worked in a carnival. We thought, perfect, you know. Now, Scotty had a different way about selling tickets. If you didn't want to buy raffle tickets, he would threaten you. And he would say he had a knife, or that he would slit your tires, or that you needed to buy more than one. And then he showed me how he was making a little extra money because he was shortchanging people. And he showed me how you shortchange someone. He learned this in the carnival. Scotty, I said, you don't do this. He says, he looked, I'll never forget. He goes, yeah, but it's for the conference, he said. I said, we got to talk about some things like, yeah, but, and we got to talk about rationalization. And I'll never forget, in trying to show him how to stay sober and to get honest, I realized how dishonest I'd been all my life. I'd realized how I had been full of this stuff. And I tried to show another member how to stay sober and alcoholics and honest. I realized how little I'd actually been doing in my own life. And there was something about this service work that was taking hold on me. And I wasn't aware that being of service was having this effect on me. And here we are in this relationship. And I don't even realize that I have unconditionally accepted this human being. I'm not no longer comparing the fact that he's a juvenile delinquent, that he doesn't have a father, that he, you know, doesn't even have an income, that his parents don't care whether he's, you know, alive or not. All I know is I love this guy because he's an alcoholic. And I know that I need him to stay sober. Well, we did this thing. Scotty raised about $2,000 that year. At least that's what he reported that he raised for our Ohio State Young People's Conference. And we grew together. And I'll never forget one of the greatest things in our whole young people's meeting was seeing Scotty get his one-year chip. At the age of 15, he had a year's continuous sobriety. He was like our star. He was our little golden, you know, sparkly little young person at our meeting. And uh, and I don't know what ever happened to Scotty. Scotty had to move back to Georgia because his parents left and had to go down. And he actually lived with his grandparents. And I was trying to help him. He was only uh, 14, 15 years old at the time. And Scotty wanted to live with me, and he couldn't. I couldn't be his guardian. I was just his sponsor. And I'll never forget the hardest thing in the world was for me to see him leave and his sister informed me a couple of months afterwards that he had been hanging out with the old the old pals again down in Georgia. And I don't know whatever happened to Scotty because I lost contact with Scotty. Scotty, if you ever hear one of these tapes, call me. We, I live in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, I would love to hear from you. And I don't know whatever happened to Scotty, but Scotty kept me sober. I don't know if I kept Scotty sober, but all I know is Scotty kept me sober, real sober. I liked what was happening. I suddenly got out of my self-centered me, 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 and I started to become we, 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 slowly but surely. And then service work became something completely different for me. Sponsoring other men became very, very important in my life. Getting involved in young people's conferences and being a treasurer and a secretary of my home group, having a subscription to the grapevine, uh, being a delegate, I mean a, uh, uh, a representative to, to Akron's intergroup, uh, office and, a, and, and, a, and a, an officer of my home group became very, very important. And I began to start to become a little more responsible in sobriety. What's our timeline? Uh, my sponsor pointed out to me that Alcoholics Anonymous in, in the recovery wants to have balance in, in, in my life. He showed me that as I first got sober, I needed to now have a relationship with my family. And I needed to make amends. And I needed to reestablish myself with that group that, that, that is my blood on this earth. He also told me that I needed to have a job. And I needed to earn my own income. Pay taxes. Not be dependent on other people for money and such. And he also showed me that I need to give back to my community. 
He showed me like this little four corners of things with AA on top and family and 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 my own uh, uh, job and my own just and my own community. And so I began to get busy in these other areas. And I, did, I had this thought in my mind one day when we were playing golf. Uh, and I said, George, I wonder who designs these golf courses. And he goes, Oh, isn't that an interesting question? Why don't we write a letter? So we wrote a bunch of. I wrote a bunch of letters. And and to make a long story short, I contacted a man who was a golf course architect. And he said, If you meet me down in Columbus, Ohio, I'll talk to you about it. My sponsor and I developed a list of questions to ask this man when I went down and met with him. And I asked these questions to him, and every time he gave me an answer, I just absolutely kept sinking down, thinking there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to do this. It requires a college, two college degrees and a construction experience, and, and you got to have playing experience, and it takes like 15 years to get this, and there's no guarantees that you can ever be in the business, and your odds of breaking in are about the same as being struck by lightning. It was the best day of my life. It was the worst day of my life. Get back to Akron. I called George that night. He was really excited to hear what the man said. I said, forget it, George. It's impossible. It's, it takes like 15 years. You can't do this. He says, what did he say? And I said, well, he's got this list. And I'll never forget, he said, what's the first thing on the list, Craig? And I read to him and said, got to go back to school and get a degree. Let's start there, he said. It never occurred to me to just start the first thing. I went back to school. Something was different. After five years of sobriety, being shown from my sponsor how to stay sober, when my sponsor took me to a meeting, we sat in the front row. When my sponsor took me to a meeting, he shook everybody's hand in the meeting. He did not wait for you to come to him. He went to everybody and stuck out his hand and said, Hi, I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. He introduced himself to everybody in the room. He sat in the front row. When I went to my math class for the first time in college that I'd failed every other time before, I had just immediately sat in the front. Teacher gave out a little test. I flunked it. Worst grade in the class. Got three right out of 21. She tried to take our temperature, take an inventory, find out where the class was so she could customize the course to help us. My hand shot up. I said, I got a question. Could you go over 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 30, 40, 40? And when I said that, the guy in the back of the room goes, is there something wrong with him? <laughs> but here I was asking for help without even realizing it. I'm asking for help. I went up afterwards because I didn't still understand the answer she gave me. I said, oh, God, here we go. I'm never going to learn this stuff. She said, you need a tutor. What is that, I'm thinking? It's someone who helps you. You mean a math sponsor? I'll never forget that coming out of my mind. She looked at me and she said, yeah, I guess you could call him. I said, where do you get him? She said, in the library after class. I went right down the library. Sure enough, said there was a girl there. And she said, hi, you're here from me. I said, yeah, are you the math sponsor? And she said, well, I'm a tourist. I said, I need help. So she and I got to know each other. Now, the reason this is important is because as she got to know me, know how I think, know what the patterns are in my life, she asked me, why are you here? I said, well, I'm here because I want to be a golf course architect. And she said, oh, you like golf? And I said, yeah. And, I, and so she was explaining math concepts to me that were abstract by using bunkers and golf balls and greens and flagsticks. You take six flagsticks over here and put one on a green. What do you have? I said, and all of a sudden, I could start to understand what she was explaining to me. Did the homework every night. Go to a meeting every day, right? Go to class every day. Sit in the front row. Ask questions. I did all that. End of the story. Final exam. I get 173 right out of 175. I scored the highest in the class from the worst in the class inside of three months. What's the point? point is I was taught the certain principles in a design for living which will set me free and allow me to live life greater than anything I ever knew in my life, and that is to ask for help. And the principle of asking for help is the very first requisite of getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And March 6, 1978, when I fell onto my knees, I meant it when I asked God, help me, please. And he did. And it was that moment of clarity that I had and that moment of humility, the first time I really can ever remember. 
And I learned to replicate that principle. I did the same thing in chemistry. I was chemistry sponsor the next year. I was a math sponsor the very next year in school. I was teaching someone else how to get the math. Just like I learned in staying sober, I really didn't know anything about sobriety till I tried to give it away. And the same thing happened in class. I got elected to president of student senate. Making amends to my family. One of the greatest amends I ever made, I never knew I did it. At commencement, when I was asked to speak because I was president of student senate, my father was in the front row. For the first time that I can remember, my father was proud to be in the front row. When the police would bring me home for shoplifting and vandalism, etc., he would claim that he had never seen me before. No, you must be mistaken. I don't really know who he is. Or he wished he didn't know who I was. And I embarrassed my father and I created a lot of shame in his life. And there he was in the very front row and I gave my talk at graduation commencement and they thought it was the most profound and wonderful talk that they had ever heard in, 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 at Ohio State University and it was basically what I called the indispensables to learning. Honesty, open-mindedness, and the willingness to change. I stole from the spiritual appendix of Alcoholics Anonymous and I talked to them about it and it blew their minds. They thought it was unbelievable. Thirteen years later, 1989, I was inducted into the American Society of Golf Course Architects along with Jack Nicholson, and a member designing golf courses all over the world. And I'm living a dream of a thing, of a little idea that sparked in my mind that I was ready to diminish. It wasn't for the help and the humility of a sponsor. I wouldn't be able to do what I love to do. My job, I don't really worry so much about the money anymore. I love to do it because I feel I'm being of service to people. My job is like a thing that I feel like I'm, I'm being of service. It's a wonderful experience. My relationship with my family, I didn't realize by going back to school, earning my own living, no longer being a worry and a fear of my parents, is he ever going to grow up, and seeing that I actually lived the amends to my family. Now, I'm no longer a detriment. I'm, no, I'm pulling my own weight, uh, and I am now something that they are glad to have in their life, and I'm living the amends. And it's only through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've been given the courage to do that. And things have happened to me in my life that I could talk about for hours in terms of being able to face life successfully. And it tells me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that that's what I will be able to do is to face life successfully. I'm not the success. I don't have the successful message. The message is the message of Alcoholics Anonymous recovery delineated in these steps and these traditions and these concepts that were read. And it's only through the love and the vehicles of all the people in AA that I've had a chance to get it, to actually get sober and stay sober and to be of usefulness today for a change. What I can do in a day, I could never do in a month in my drinking. What I am going to do just today, in this day in September, I could never even fathom that I would be able to do in a month's time while I was drinking. And it's just another day. To be able to, be, to stand in front of you, some of you strangers, of which all of you are not strangers in a way, just faces I've not seen before, and to tell you about a segment or a piece of my life beaten and bludgeoned into a state of, of total humiliation by the perils of drinking alcohol uncontrollably to the point where I almost died has brought me in front of you not to be judged, not to be measured up, but to be accepted and loved unconditionally. You did that for me, and it's made it easier for me to love those unconditionally. Today, I sponsor a couple of guys in Akron, Ohio, Kansas City. I didn't know where I live. I sponsor, still lives in Akron, Ohio, and I talk to my sponsor. And I love and respect my sponsor. And my life is now something that I feel 
comfortable with. I'm not, I hope I don't ever get complacent, but I'm no longer powered or, or, or overwhelmed by the fears and that sense of impending doom. I now have faith in a God that I know comes through the people and the hearts of all of you in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it is really a gift to be here. Now, I looked up some words uh, in the dictionary when I was back in college once, and I'll close with this. I really have begun to appreciate having an open mind. I wish I could do it every day, but I can't. It's the hardest thing for me is to keep my mind open and to try new things all the time. And when I was uh, in this college of uh, 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 back in Worcester, Ohio, uh, I was there in front of the Cambridge Underbridge Dictionaries. Now, this is the largest dictionary in the world. Every letter is a full volume. It's a whole book the size of a regular dictionary because it's got every freaking word in the world in it and its origin. And I looked up the word alcoholic. Now, I remember when I went to New York to talk at that Young People's Conference or to be in that panel about humility. It was the shortest talk I ever had, by the way. And uh, I'll never forget we went to intergroup. And we, and we went to World Service Headquarters, actually, and, and where the grapevine was. And on the wall in World Service Headquarters was a letter written by Dr. Jung back to Bill Wilson. And Bill was starting to write the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with the other members. He had talked to Roland, and Roland said, you should talk to Dr. Jung. Jung, you know, and so he writes a letter to Jung, and he says, Dr. Jung, what is this spiritual experience? Can you tell us? We need to, we need to know what this is. And this letter and writing is in response is, is there on the wall to Bill. Dear Bill, Dear Mr. Wilson, thank you for your letter on such and such. I really don't know what a spiritual experience is in psychoanalytic terms. I can't really describe it. I don't really know what it is in theological or, or religious jargon. Uh, it says, all I know is I can tell you that I looked up the word alcohol and I traced it to an, to an origin. And it comes from a Latin word, spiritus. Have any of you ever remember drinking a while back some of the old timers might, where it said on the bottle it said spirits, 11% or something like that. They didn't know sometimes that that was actually an alcoholic molecule. And when the knights of the round table would get drunk and drink the grape juice and all that, and they'd forget where they put the horse and the lance and end up with a weird taste in their mouth, and the king of the court didn't know what that stuff was, and they didn't know it was alcohol. They thought it was the spirits in this wine that made these guys forget where everything was. Well, uh, he traced this to the word uh, spiritus, and, and, uh, and I looked at that, and that means the uh, breath of life. Now, as I described to you, remember that first drunk I had when I got that, and, and I had that sense of that, that was the breath of life that I experienced. That was the spirits in that alcohol. That's what ignited me. That's what I thought life could be like, and then alcohol turned on me. And now I know why they call it spirits us. Now, I looked up one other word, and it was a word that was first pinned on me by my sponsor. I said, George, now, when you knew I was mistaking you as a person of seven days sobriety or 17 days of sobriety, why didn't you stop me? He just laughed. He goes, oh, no, you were beautiful, he said. No, you were beautiful. He said, you had all that enthusiasm. Enthusiasm? I never heard that word pinned on me before. I heard I was hyper. I heard I had a short attention span. I heard I was nervous. I heard I had some learning disability. I heard I had about a hundred things. Nobody ever said that's enthusiasm. I mean, I thought I was a freaking basket case by the 12th grade because I couldn't sit still. I had some learning disability. You know, I was bored. Plain and simple. School wasn't going fast enough. And I wasn't interested. 
I wanted to be hip, be slick, and date girls. I didn't want to learn and take my time and be disciplined. I thought I had problems. I thought I was, I mean, I thought I was supposed to, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, end up, uh, uh, is, a, is a basket case somewhere. I mean, my principal was telling me that. The psychiatrist was telling me that. My parents were telling me that. Nobody ever said that's enthusiasm. Now, I'm in this college. I've looked up the word alcohol. Sure enough, it comes from the word spiritus, meaning the, the breath of life. And I look up the word enthusiasm. I thought, well, geez, that's something that they, George has pinned on me. And it comes from a Greek word, entheos. And it means inspired by God. That's what enthusiasm means. Now, all along, I thought I had a problem. I had a learning disability. I thought I had a math block. I am inspired by God. But like anything, if there isn't balance, it'll go rampant. My sponsor explained to me one thing. You ever watch Kentucky Derby? Yeah. He says, you know what the job of the jockey is? I said, yes, to make the horse races noted. The job of a good jockey is to hold the horse back and to know when to let it go. Because if he just lets it go, it'll run itself out and it won't be able to really plot itself against. The key with enthusiasm is to learn to hold it back and when to let it go. And it needs to have balance. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has helped me realize that I need in my life is balance. How do I do that? When I get up in the morning, I hit my knees. That's where I start. God, help me to stay sober. That's the first way I know how to get balanced. And I try to be of service. Can you help me do your will, not mine? As I go from the day here, please let me be of somehow of service to you. And then I get up and I try to do the next right thing. And I try to be of service. I try to read something out of the grapevine or contact someone in AA. At the end of the day, when I get home or when I get back to the hotel tonight, I'm going to hit my knees and I'm going to say, God, thank you for today. And that's the only way I know how to have balance in my life is to rely on all the people in AA to help me float. Because without you, I have nothing. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you.